Please turn to Acts chapter 12 in your Bibles. Acts chapter 12. In the kingdom of man, there are certain rules by which the game of life is played. There are certain ideals to which the world naturally aspires. People concoct their own unique recipes, to be sure, but everyone is working with the same basic ingredients, pursuing the same basic ideals. What are they? We know the rules of this world. We were born into it, and we see it every day. Power. Pleasure. Popularity. Peace. Self-promotion. Whether enamored with one of these ideals, some people just say, give me power, I don't care about the other things. I don't care about what anybody thinks of me. I don't care about pleasure. I want power. Whether we're on that end of it, or many who would aspire to achieve all of them equally. The quest is, nonetheless, in some sense for power and pleasure and popularity and peace and self-promotion, all to the glory and benefit of self. This is the world in which we live. It's always been this way since the fall. King Herod Agrippa I, the governor of all Palestine from 41 to 44 AD, was a master achiever of each of these ideals. He was raised without a father. His mother Bernice brought him up in the privileged inner circle of Rome's imperial family. Agrippa became a man of loose morals who pursued the sizzling pleasures of Rome with youthful abandon. Things caught up to him finally, and he had to run from Rome to Palestine to get away from his creditors. He had spent so much money on pleasure. He eventually returned to Rome where he was imprisoned by Emperor Tiberius for his prideful disloyalty. He was a proud, self-promoting man of pleasure and also a man of power. For when two of his childhood buddies took their turn being emperor of the Roman Empire, his fortunes changed dramatically. His career took off and by 41 AD, he was king of all Palestine. He was a shrewd politician. Agrippa understood that he had to keep peace in Israel, and he figured out better than anyone before him of all the other Herods how to do this. You make the Jews happy rather than constantly resisting them. Agrippa made them happy with unusual success. Now think of it. He is a Edomite, a hated Edomite. He is ruling for the hated empire of Rome and over Palestine, and yet he is extremely popular because he gives away many gifts to the Israeli people, and he scrupulously follows their religious laws. The Jews adore Agrippa. He has gained popularity against all odds in Palestine. Well, we meet Agrippa in Acts chapter 12, where he is carefully playing by all these rules, by the rules of man's kingdom. And you will see as we go through this, his quest for power, his quest for pleasure and popularity, 
He wants peace. He wants to promote himself and pride. All in direct conflict with God and his kingdom. We have three movements here in this narrative. And the titles that I give to them will come across as being extremely obvious. But watch them. Watch them as they progress through the text. The first, Herod executes James. Herod executes the apostle James. Chapter 12, verse 1, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. We go back to chapter 9. And like Saul of Tarsus, Herod takes up a hostile position against the followers of Jesus. Witnesses to Christ are once again under official assault. Chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested, interrogated, intimidated by the greatest powers in Israel. Chapter 5, the apostles are thrown into prison. And it's only Gamaliel's speech that keeps them from death. In chapter 7, Stephen is not spared. And he is stoned to death, this Hellenistic Jew. Then in chapter 9, Saul is persecutor in Damascus becomes the persecuted in both Damascus and Jerusalem. Satan is attacking. The kingdom of man is rearing its head against the people of God once again. And now here, for the second time, a Christian martyr falls in Jerusalem. James was undoubtedly charged with apostasy and probably beheaded. It was a horrifying day for the church. Think of it. The apostle James the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, a witness to the risen Christ, was dead. As Jesus had prophesied to James' mother, her son drank the bitter cup of Jesus' suffering. We ask, why? Why does Herod kill James? From the perspective of man's kingdom, Herod's actions make perfect sense. Now think of it from his angle, from the kingdom of man. Herod gains popularity with the majority, endearing himself to the power brokers in Israel. He keeps the peace, which keeps the taxes flowing, which secures his position of power paving the way for him to pursue his sensual pleasures as king, particularly at Caesarea. Everything Herod does makes perfect sense under Babel's banner. This is why he kills James. It's expedient to do so for the purposes of man's kingdom. But there's another reason behind his actions, isn't there? The reality is there's another kingdom operative in this world. There is another king, Jesus Christ, a king whose victory over death has seated him at God's right hand until all enemies are made a footstool for his feet. This same Jesus will return to set up his kingdom on earth. He will judge the living and the dead. While Herod and the Jewish leaders may not fully appreciate this, why do they kill James? They are reacting with such vicious animosity against defenseless Christians because they intuitively perceive that the kingdom that they serve is under attack. 
I read at length, forgive me, this is so well said, from Dennis Johnson on the message of Acts. He crystallizes the point well. Hone in here and listen. He says the coming kingdom upsets human structures of power and control, threatening the status quo and provoking the opposition of the status quo's custodians and beneficiaries, Sanhedrin, King Herod. When God's kingdom spreads through the Spirit and the Word, it shakes to its roots the system of power and profit in which the pillars of society have sought their security. Threatened with the loss of what in the end they cannot keep, they retaliate against the messengers who offer a priceless gift that cannot be lost. God's kingdom initiates the overturning of the patterns of pride and exploitation that permeate sinful human society. So those with a vested interest in maintaining the injustices of the status quo cannot be expected to welcome God's good news to the poor or His release of the oppressed. They're troubled by these Christians because their kingdom is in trouble. As rabid supporters of man's kingdom, they're playing by the rules of power, of pleasure, of prosperity, peace on their terms, and at the heart of it all self. These weak supports of their house of cards are being shaken by the followers of Jesus Christ and their witness about another king who rules supremely from heaven's throne. This is a clash of kingdoms and nothing less. And they propose to crush the enemy whose only weapon is announcing the good news in its meaning. Now verses 3 and following open a new vista in this conflict. So follow it. James is executed. The second movement in this narrative, very simply, is this. God delivers Peter from execution. James is executed, but Peter is delivered from execution by God. Verse 3, when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. What is Herod's motivation for arresting Peter? Apparently the same motivation for arresting and executing James. He's joining with the majority against the minority. The approval of the majority is what motivates him. So continuing in verse 3, this was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. A little labor here on bridging the gap in the context. Since the Jewish authorities would not approve of an execution of a fellow Jew during the festival, Herod shrewdly complies and waits. But he's going to be sure not to lose Peter. And so he takes four squads of four soldiers each and sets them at guard. Peter is not going to get away. One arm of Peter's is chained to a soldier inside the cell. The other arm of Peter is also chained to another soldier inside the cell. And then there are two other soldiers that are guarding the door of the prison. 
And this guard will continue to change so that everyone is always fresh. Trained soldiers who know how to kill and are looking forward to an opportunity to do so. To put their training to work. You're not going to get through these men. Now, it's unleavened bread. That's a week-long festival that follows Passover. The whole thing, as verse 4 indicates, is just referred to as Passover. He's going to wait, but he's heard some rumors out there that these Christians are escape artists, chapter 5, and you've really got to watch what you're doing. So it was normal to chain one guard to an inmate. That was good enough. That guard with a weapon and knowing that he had to guard this prisoner with his life, that was enough. He puts two chained to Peter. He's not going to lose him. So here is Peter awaiting his mock trial followed by certain execution. We can only imagine what is going through his mind. He's got time to think and to pray. It's not a very intimate situation, obviously, or a very private situation. But here he is with these soldiers thinking and waiting through some days of this week. They've killed my good friend, James. James. We walk together with Jesus. Now he's with Jesus. But he's gone. And at this very time of year, Passover, they took our Lord. Jesus told me this day would come. I guess I'm next. While Peter is there in prison, the church is busy praying in another place. Verse 5, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Earnest prayers. What did they pray in this situation? I don't think these are panicked prayers. If you'll make your way back to chapter 4. I don't think these are small prayers that are just simply praying, get Peter out of this, please. I'm sure they were praying for his deliverance. But as we know, the pattern that had already been modeled for them in the church, I think we would do better to draw off of chapter 4 in another context of persecution. How did the believers pray when they were told to never again speak in the name of Christ, even though Jesus had commissioned them to do so? Verse 24 of Acts 4, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. And where do they start? Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They know the script is in God's hand. 
And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. God has power. He can intervene. They know this. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They're filled with the Spirit of God. Indeed, in chapter 5, there is a miraculous deliverance from prison. These people know this history. This is how they pray. And undoubtedly, this is how they are praying for Peter in some sense. Verse 6, the narrative continues. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, so the next day he is going to face a mock trial and certain execution. That very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Acts twelve seven. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands passed right through, or broke, we don't know. But the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so, and he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Verse 18 indicates the soldiers were miraculously neutralized with a deep sleep that's sent by God that's not made explicit here, but it seems obvious from verse 18. And Peter's in a rather deep sleep himself, isn't he? There's this glorious presence of this angel that fills the cell with light, much as the angels illumine the night sky when they announce the birth of Jesus. But rather than waking, startled half to death, Peter is so groggy with heavy sleep, the angel has to strike him to get him up. Get up, Peter. And once he's up, you see the angel here, it's almost it's like he's coaching Peter like he's a little child woken up in the middle of the night. Get your sandals on. Get your robe on. Let's go. Let's get moving. Let's get up. He's really out of it here. Now, people have made a lot out of how sleepy Peter is and that this demonstrates certain things about his heart. I don't think we can really draw any conclusions other than he was really asleep. He may not know that he's about to be executed the next day. He may not know if he's going to be here for a year. He may be very tired. The soldiers on three-hour shifts may have messed with him a lot, and he may just been very, very tired. This might be a divine sleep that's on all of them. But it takes a lot of stirring to get him up. And, verse 9, he went out and followed the angel as he was instructed. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Everything's yet unreal to him. He's so groggy. In his sleep, verse 10, when they had passed the first and the second guard, again, undoubtedly, miraculously, we don't know exactly how, if the door of the prison opened of its own accord, the guards apparently are out of it. They came then to the iron gate leading into the city. Very likely at the Antonia Fortress that was connected to the temple area, there was a gate that led out onto the city streets. But if it's at Herod's palace, there's a gate that leads out onto the city street. It's that gate, whichever one it is, opens of its own and leads into the city. It opened for them, verse 10 says, of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. You can handle it from here, Peter. Apparently revived by the fresh air, Peter is finally fully awake. 
Verse 11, he comes to himself and says, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. He's seen a vision before. He thought he was in a vision, and now he's kind of, you see him blinking in the night air out here and saying, This isn't a vision. I'm on, on my own two feet here, and I better find somewhere to go. Verse 12, he realized this, and he went then to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. John is Jewish name, Mark is Roman name, where many were gathered together and were praying. This middle-of-the-night prayer vigil is being held in the home of Mary, apparently a common meeting place in Jerusalem for the believers. It served them well there, and Peter intuitively heads there to crash the meeting. One thinks of the story of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, who crashed their own funeral. Peter's kind of, in a sense, doing that here. It's a wealthy home. It would be a gated home with a courtyard and then the house where there are many believers gathered here in the middle of the night praying about this situation with great earnestness. In verse 13, when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate. Not in her fear, but in her joy, she doesn't open the gate, but ran in and, re- and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. You can just see this. this. Sure, she's scared to death. Christians are in big trouble right now. They're praying here in the middle of the night. There's a knock at the gate. They didn't know of anybody coming this night. Who is it? It's me, Peter. Open the gate. And you just see her stunned with joy. All she can think of is turning around. There's some kids here in the church that I would cast in this place if it was a play. <laughs> you could just see the, just the excitement that just comes in. She loses her wit, stunned by this joy. She runs across the courtyard. You can just see her. It's Peter, it's Peter, it's Peter. They're never going to believe this. And she crashes into the prayer meeting and said, He's at the gate. Peter's at the gate. There is Peter in the cold night air, blinking, wondering what on earth happened to Rhoda on the other side of the gate. He keeps knocking at the gate. Well, Rhoda's inside the house and not getting very far with the prayer warriors that are in there. Verse 15, they said to her, you are out of your mind. Now, we could rebuke them. I'm not going to rebuke people who are praying in the middle of the night and people who have shown great depth and love for God, but it is kind of ironic, isn't it? They knew how God was going to answer their prayer, and this wasn't it. God can't go on this script because it's not our script. You're out of your mind. Well, she's so insistent that, that it was this way that they kept saying, then it's his angel. No, he's at the gate. It's, it must be his angel. No, he's at the gate. It must be his angel. The Greek text indicating that they're persistently saying this to her. All we know is that there was a rabbinic teaching at the time, whether true or not, that's in God's mind. He hasn't revealed this to us specifically. But that there are guardian angels that can assume your identity in a sense. And that this must be who's standing at the gate. Meanwhile, the answer to their prayers is still outside knocking at the gate, saying, let me in. Verse 16, but Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were astonished 
They were amazed, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. James, Jesus' half-brother, to whom the risen Savior appeared, and a man who will be privileged to die for Jesus in 62 A.D., James has replaced Peter, the leader of the Jerusalem church, probably because of Peter's travels in evangelism. He was a man, James, of deep devotion to God, highly respected there in Jerusalem, and he became the individual who gave consistent leadership on site to the Jerusalem church until his death by martyrdom. Peter goes to another place, an undisclosed location. Perhaps no one knew where he was going, but he makes himself scarce as he moves out before dawn. And the message goes out to James of what has happened, this great release from prison. Verse 18, now when day came, back at the ranch, as they say, back at the prison, when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Again, the indication is that they had been overcome with sleep. It's not till day that they recognize the man chained to their wrists is gone. And after Herod, verse 19, searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. The only time a Roman guard can say, I have no idea where my prisoner is, where my charge is, only time a Roman soldier can do that and live to tell about it is if you're guarding the tomb of Jesus. Then you can get away with it. In fact, then you make money off the deal. But in the real world of Roman soldiering, if you lose your prisoner, whatever was going to happen to him is now going to happen to you. And so Herod calls these soldiers in, and they have no answer. Herod, obviously, is on the wrong page. He should have asked a few more questions, but he assumes that they are at fault, and he leads them out to be executed. In the pattern of that day, probably tortured and killed. Then he goes down from Judea to Caesarea, to spend time there. That's the way it works. The Roman ruler comes to the festivals, stays at, the, um, at Herod's palace or at the Antonia, the fortress, until the festival is over, then returns to Caesarea, the more cosmopolitan town, the more opulent, pleasure-oriented city, and the place where his work awaits. But now... There is work there for him to do, as we'll see in the third movement of this narrative. But hear it. Simple titles. But think of the progression. James is executed. Peter is delivered from execution. The third movement, God executes Herod. There's something in all of that. God executes Herod. Verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him there at Caesarea with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, this, this intimate of the, of the king and uh, an advisor to him, a servant to him of high standing and importance, they asked for peace. Why? Because they love Herod? No, because their country depended on the king's country for food. That is, there's grain that comes out of Galilee. Herod releases that grain to Tyre and Sidon, 
and they're getting hungry. And so this little dispute with Herod's got to be fixed, and they work to meet with him. On an appointed day, verse 21, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. The Jewish historian Josephus, not a Christian, but he records this very situation. He says that Herod wore a robe of woven silver thread that gleamed in the morning sun, inspiring fear and awe in those who gazed intently upon it, to use his words. Verse 22, seated now on the throne in this sparkling robe before the people. The people, during the speech, begin to shout, the voice of a God and not of a man. Again, Josephus records this very setting. He uses different words. He describes it in a different way. But he even quotes some of the crowd who called out and said there's something distinct between Herod and a mortal human. He's a god. And how does Herod respond? He drinks it all in. This is man's kingdom. You play by the rules. You bask in the glow of prestige and honor in your great robe, seated as a king, people praising you. Life doesn't get any better than this. Now, I'm as good as a god in their minds. And immediately, verse 23, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. I'd like you to contrast something. Go back to verse 7. and Just note that with your eye. Verse 7, back in the prison. An angel of God struck Peter to bring him out of prison and free him from death. Verse 23, an angel of God struck Herod to bring him down to earth and to damn him to death. God is working. He delivers Peter. He kills Herod. Probably with intestinal round worms. I could just about send you all walking here real quickly if I went into too great detail. I'll spare you some of the details, but just to get a little sense of it, These worms can grow to 10 to 16 inches each. They inhabit the intestines and feed off the nutrient fluids, causing severe abdominal pain and blockage. It's a horrifying way to die with worms exiting the body in various ways and the victim living in exhausting pain. This, again, is what Josephus confirms. He adds the information. Here we believe it because the Bible says it, not because Josephus says it, but it's interesting. He says that in the middle of the speech, Herod goes down with this pain. They have to take him out, and he's in five days of unending, excruciating pain and basically dies of exhaustion. Herod kills James. God kills Herod. I believe this is put here at the end of chapter 12 for a very specific reason. It lines up with Herod killing James, but I think it brings to close this 12th chapter and this place of transition in the book very purposefully. 
But you notice verse 24, the word but. God strikes down Herod, who was opposing the gospel, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And thus comes to close this third track of Acts as we move into the fourth track at verse 25 and into chapters 13 and following. There is a clash here that is on. Herod versus the risen and reigning and returning Christ. Serving the kingdom of man, Herod moves to crush the believers in pursuit of power and pleasure and popularity and peace and self-promotion. Herod's world was threatened by the Christians and he lashes out. Think of this clash. Herod, the king, with an army behind him. The disciples, social outcasts, religious outcasts, armed with what? A message of hope and peace with God. Just words. That's it. No political aspirations, no army, no swords, words. It's a complete mismatch. This narrative reminds us it's not a mismatch. It reminds us Herod is on the losing army. This narrative reminds us that there is another kingdom besides the kingdom of man whose saber-rattling power is so evident to our eyes. This narrative reminds us of these great themes of salvation history. Suffering, James, a martyr. Deliverance, Peter. Vindication, Herod. And think of it all as it reflects the Savior's work of salvation. Ultimate martyrdom, the cross. Ultimate escape and deliverance, the resurrection. And ultimate triumph, all enemies put under His feet. This is the outworking of God's kingdom through Christ We must go from here with a strong sense that the early church had of the sovereignty of God. Think of it. James dies. Peter escapes. Why? We don't know. But we're not going to conclude from James dying that Jesus is somehow on vacation or does not have power in this world. For God's own sovereign purposes, James gives his life Peter lives to witness another day. He'll give his life. James, the leader at the church here in Jerusalem, will give his life. All in God's time, according to his purposes, which we may not ever quite understand. But in light of the Gentile mission, beginning in chapter 13, Acts 12 eliminates the false perception that Jesus had lost here in Jerusalem. Whenever he wants, he'll put down the king. In his time, his way, he'll do his battle. Sovereignty of God. Secondly, we think then of the response. And that has to be here a sense of a willingness to suffer as Jesus' people for his kingdom. There there should be courageous willingness for us to proclaim salvation in Christ to a world that is positioned against that message and bent on lashing out against those who oppose. This enterprise to which Jesus calls us is not a safe one. It's one of a clash of kingdoms. Acts 5 and verse 41, they rejoice to be counted worthy to suffer for the victorious Christ. 
We are worthy to suffer for Him. That's how they rejoiced. To be dishonored by those who are fighting for Satan's kingdom is an honor when you're in Jesus' kingdom. Again, Johnson writes, to the people who are alive to the hope of God's kingdom, the realistic expectation of suffering in the footsteps of the king is not, in the final analysis, discouraging. The apostolic call to endure hardship is a call to embrace hope, the hope of the kingdom of God. It is people who have lost sight of hope who will pay any price to shun suffering. Man, that line hit me in the heart. Hard. That's us in our fear. It is people who have lost sight of hope who will pay any price to shun suffering. And that leads to this third point of horror. As I've read this and thought of this, it's Horrifying to me, my own sin. When our own attraction to the earthly temptations of power and pleasure and peace and self-promotion blind us to the realities of the return and the final vindication of Jesus. We stand in our pride back and we say, that's the world That's the game they play. So concerned about making sure everything's at peace. Promoting themselves. Power, prestige, pleasure. That's all they deal with. We're enamored by those very same things and it causes us to keep our mouth quiet about Jesus. We shun suffering and pass on our calling and opportunity to bear the reproach of Christ. The result is that we grow dull to the wonders of Christ's conquest, and thus we cower in fear and remain consumed by spiritual lethargy. We're going to need to live by faith. We're going to have to see Christ reigning. We're going to have to know what He is doing in this world, that He's given us His authority to go into any place and proclaim Christ as King and Savior. But we're dulled by the things of this world, and we don't see it. And we believe the lie that Satan runs this world with absolute authority. We've got to learn to see reality. We have to live by faith in the reigning Christ, in the confidence of his coming conquest, to serve the king who reigns above all earthly powers and will never leave us or forsake us. We are not to be the offense. We are not to simply offend people and be obnoxious, but we are not to be driven by fear and the lust for the ideals of this world. And may I add just one final point, and that is coming out of this clearly to me is a word on mercy. Say mercy. God doesn't seem very merciful to Herod. Listen, if we would understand sin... For one second, if we would understand the purity and the holiness of God for just a brief passing moment of time, we would know that it's absolute mercy that we don't all end like Herod. Don't be fooled. God's finger is on the tripwire 
of hell's trap door. And if you are not born again, you're standing on that door. It is nothing but his mercy that keeps you from falling directly into hell. Living under the banner of self-interest and self-promotion, you are every day testing the patience of a pure and holy God whose law you are repeatedly violating day after day after day. You stand on that trapdoor. There is a God of immense mercy. Herod is not the evidence of an evil, sinister God. It's really ultimately an evidence of the long-suffering, merciful kindness of God who says to sinners, turn to me now. Repent of your Herod quality quest to live for your glory and the ideals of this world. And embrace the Savior who rules supreme above all earthly powers. May those of us who know him go into this world and proclaim the message of Christ crucified and risen. And anyone who has not been born again by this message, don't presume on the mercy of God. Come to him in repentant faith now. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how rich we are. Those of us who know you as Savior, it is only by your mercy. And we bow to thank you, to praise you, and Lord, to confess our sins of being so enamored with the things of this world that we forget and we look away from the cause of Christ. I pray that we'd never take a bite of food, never drink, never sleep, never wake, never play, never work, never sit still without a sense that our lives are rooted in the conquest of the gospel and centered on the hope of Jesus coming back. We pray for the victory of the gospel. And God, we say to you, how small is our faith to see the real world. But Lord, I pray that you'd send out from this church in daily life an army of witnesses who are faithful to this challenge. God, we repent of our sin, our lethargy, our fear, our idolatry as we look at the ideals of this world and realize that witness is about the last way to get them. But may we realize that as we proclaim the message from pure motives, we are pursuing the ultimate reward. I pray for this assembly that you would conform us to the purposes that you have for us and transform us by your mercy. And Lord, may your mercy rest on anyone whose eyes are blinded to the gospel yet. Open their eyes and bring them to saving faith today. Through Christ I pray. Amen.